as of 11.59pm tonight. Here we go again. Sunday, February 14, Auckland will move to level three for a period of three days until midnight on Wednesday. There are three new cases of COVID-19 in the community, a mother, father and daughter, all from the same South Auckland household. The rest of New Zealand will move to level two for the same period of time. The source of infection is yet to be identified. Three days, though, should give us enough time to gather further information, undertake large-scale testing and establish if there has been wider community transmission. Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, Newsroom's Mark Dolder on the race to trace the source of the latest COVID community outbreak. Originally it was the mother and daughter of this South Auckland family who got tests because they had symptoms. That would have been reported up to officials at the Ministry of Health and at Regional Public Health uh, Service in Auckland. By the next morning, the COVID-19 response minister, Chris Hipkins, was uh, alerted to the fact that two people had tested positive. After their results came back positive, the father also received a test and uh, his result came back positive later in the day on Sunday. And it was around then that the government called a press conference. The Ministry of Health is calling a press conference in the next hour to provide an update on the coronavirus situation. It is believed there may be community cases in South Auckland under investigation. With Dr Bloomfield and Chris Hipkins, uh, where they revealed that the new cases had been identified. So by Sunday morning, Ashley Bloomfield and Chris Hipkins knew about it, but the Prime Minister didn't find out until 90 minutes before it became public. In a sign of how seriously the government is taking this, the Prime Minister cancelled her appearance at Auckland's big gay out this afternoon to fly back to Wellington. She will be briefed and be actively involved in the decision-making process. And were you at that press conference? I uh, watched it from home in my pyjamas, but um, I was at that stage still naively hopeful that uh, Valentine's Day would be able to go ahead as planned. It quickly became apparent that that wasn't the case, and I did end up back in Parliament for the 7pm press conference. Kira koutou katoa, everyone. I am aware that we have come down slightly early, so I'll just... And Mark, you know, with your coverage of it and, and really looking in depth at various aspects of the whole pandemic, did you get any sense early on that this might be worse than our previous outbreaks like the Pullman MIQ one, for example? Yeah, I I think there's a few differences between this one and previous ones. It's similar to the Pullman one in that we are dealing with the same or similar, more transmissible variant of the virus. We reacted differently this time, I think in part because of the location where the the cases you know live and, and work in a relatively densely populated area in, in Auckland compared to you know Northland and a handful of tourist locations across Northland where super spreading is less likely to have occurred personally i got the sense that it really depended on a couple of things which is one the the genome of the virus which we now know is the b117 variant. Dr. Susie Wells, Associate Professor Susie Wells, morning, Susie. So this is the variant whose origins are in the UK, right? It was the variant first identified in the UK. Okay, um, this variant is more problematic because it is more contagious and it has a higher mortality rate, is that right? So at the moment what we absolutely 
certainly know is that it is more infectious. More people are becoming infected, uh, more cases from a primary case, possibly even faster. We're seeing some transmission chains that happen just within a few days. It's, it's quite wow. frightening. And it also depends on sort of whether these people would have gone on to infect other people and whether they are the sort of first link in a chain of transmission or whether there are people who have come before them who may have infected others besides the ones we found, sort of creating a, a bigger tree that we don't know much about. In the end, the government chose, given that we didn't have the answers to that by the end of the day, that ahead of the work week restarting, it would be prudent to give us the time we needed to find the answers to those questions by, by doing that sort of quick three-day uh, lockdown and, and sort of raising uh, the alert level to level two across the rest of the country just to sort of dampen any potential transmission and, and give us a chance to figure out what's what's going on. So the PM cancelled her big gay out appearance and flew to Wellington for a cabinet meeting. But unlike previous emergency cabinet meetings that were held before the lockdown call, this one was a bit different. So the, the cabinet would, would meet sort of at the behest of the prime minister. Um, I'm not actually certain if the entirety of cabinet met or if a smaller subcommittee of ministers who since uh, about I believe February, maybe early March, have been tasked with responding to COVID-19 and, and they're sort of the ministers with power to act and they convene to make a lot of these decisions without the full cabinet necessarily needing to to convene. It probably would have been uh, something where you had some people there in person in Wellington and some people teleconferencing from elsewhere in the country. And it would probably be quite a different situation from what happened in say, March or April or even in August when you would have had New Zealand first ministers sitting around the table uh, as well. Probably there would have been sort of some scientific discussion, but not much political disagreement about the path ahead. And and more or less what the prime minister wanted would be what happened. And when you say scientific discussion, would that be with the science advisors? Yeah. So Dr. Bloomfield would have submitted his, his advice to cabinet and he consults sort of a, a wide range of people while preparing that advice. He said on Sunday that he had consulted. Prime Minister, could, could I also add that, of course, I haven't made uh, my, developed my advice in um, isolation. I've been in a number of discussions today that have included my chief science advisor, the prime minister's chief science um, uh, advisor, but also uh, the national response leadership team, which is convened by the chief executive of DPMC, convened in the middle of the day. That includes the secretary of the treasury and other CEs. And we um, go right around all these issues. I test my mm. thinking with them and also um, take their advice and views on board in finalising my advice to, to cabinet. At the same time that Dr Bloomfield was talking to various experts, Auckland Regional Public Health Service was contacting Auckland Airport and the woman's employer, LSG Sky Chefs. And they would have then also been in charge of notifying the various businesses that have since been identified as sort of locations of concern. After someone tests positive, a community case, they'll go through a number of case interviews to determine, you know, where they've been recently, when they first began to experience symptoms, who they've seen since then. There's an initial one, which is, is fairly comprehensive, but there are usually repeat ones after that because, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't be able to sort of immediately rehash everywhere I've been in the past 14 days and everyone I've seen off the top of my head directly after being told that I'd been infected with a sort of deadly virus. Um, so you have these follow-up interviews, and it doesn't mean that people are necessarily hiding something. It's just 
natural human error that people won't remember everything the first time around. So as these interviews are going on and as they talk with first the mother, then the daughter, then once the father's test comes back, the father, and then they'll go on to their close contacts and, and trace their the contacts of their close contacts called recursive contact tracing in, in order to further widen that net in the event that these people do test positive. And from there, as, as a list of locations and, and uh, people who might be exposed comes in, the health, public health service can then go out and notify those places or people. And when you say they have a number of interviews, what what are you talking about there? Essentially that... Um, you know, directly after testing positive, you might get a call from the public health service who is seeking to trace your contacts. They will probably say, Ed, if you remember anything else, let us know. And they may also follow up a little bit later to say, hey, just checking, have you remembered anything? Or we are curious, did you go anywhere between that time when you stopped at the Burger King and when you got petrol? You know, there's a mall nearby. Did you happen to visit that or, or something like that? So mm. they might be, you know, doing a bit of proactive inquiry as well and, and just making sure that people haven't forgotten things. There is an extensive list of locations of interest now for all three of these positive cases, which is on the website, and we will continue to update this. I should say, just looking through that website, that it includes um, a number of places in New Plymouth that are tourist attractions or eating places, as well as outdoor places. Is it the Prime Minister who ultimately makes the decision or is it kind of a group decision? How do they, how would they have reached that decision to announce the lockdown? I think in this scenario it would be the Prime Minister who sort of makes the final call. Maybe in the past uh, the Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters might have argued with her or put up some resistance. But at this stage, it's, you know, a Labour cabinet, um, only Labour ministers in there. And, and Jacinda Ardern being not only the prime minister, but also the leader of the Labour Party w- would probably get her away. That's not to say that there was necessarily disagreement within cabinet anyways, but just that it wouldn't have necessarily required significant consensus. Probably people would have fallen behind the prime minister pretty quickly if it became apparent what her views were. So we get to the press conference. Good evening. Cabinet has met this evening to make decisions on our response to three cases reported earlier today within a household in Auckland. And so you must have got a feeling when that press conference was called in the Beehive Theatre at at 7 o'clock on Sunday night that there was something serious about to be announced? Yeah, I think the um, key thing was that the Prime Minister was there. That didn't necessarily mean for certain it would be an alert level change, but they're not going to change alert levels if the Prime Minister isn't there. Um, so in the past, if, if you think back to November when we had the this MIQ breach uh, from a, a defence force worker um, who then sort of brought the virus to Wellington and, and there were a few cases in Auckland and, and here and there, Chris Hipkins and Ashley Bloomfield fronted at, uh, I believe, maybe 8pm and said, look, we're not going to do an alert level change. Um, you know, it's not a, a new community outbreak. So if Chris Hipkins had been coming up uh, at 7pm on Sunday, then I would have assumed that there wouldn't be an alert level change and, and perhaps there was good news or at least no further bad news. But when the PM's coming up, then that means the situation's less certain. New Zealanders have enjoyed more freedoms for longer periods of time than nearly any other country in the world. And we have never taken for granted how special that was. And then, of course, Monday morning, we get the news early Monday morning that this is the UK variant that these positive cases um, have, which is 
alarming because... Because why? Because you've been studying these different variants. You say that they're they're scary. Why are they so scary? Um, I think it really is the contagiousness that makes them scary. The the variants are concerning because the measures we're used to using quite effectively against COVID-19 are not ineffective, but less effective against them. And that means essentially, if this is more than just a handful of cases, if they've spread it to a number of people in uh, the community or if they're not the first link in the chain and, in fact, they got it from someone else in the community, that means we might have to be a lot tougher with this virus than we were in August. A lot tougher in terms of a longer, harder lockdown? Yeah, certainly harder. It might be a trade-off, right? If if the reproduction number is 0.9, that means your epidemic is getting smaller very, very slowly, but it is getting smaller. So then there's the question of, well, do we want to do level three with the 0.9 reproduction number and do that for, who knows, a month or two months or or longer? Mm -hmm. Or do we want to do a level four, which is a lot more costly? It's a lot more difficult for people to cope with on a human level, but it might be shorter because it would reduce the reproduction number quite Mm -hmm. a lot more. That's sort of a, a choice for policymakers if we do find ourselves in a scenario where the B117 variant is not contained. These new uh, cases pose questions our public health staff are working around the clock to answer. And we are waiting for the genome sequencing and serology, both of which will provide important pieces of this puzzle. Alongside that, we have modelling, which can be run quite quickly. There's a few different models that are run. So there's a one that's a bit more um, general, which can be run in about an hour and, and probably would have been run right about when the cases were first identified on Saturday evening or, or Sunday morning, um, which gives you a rough idea of how many cases might be out there if there are, say, three cases in Papatoitoy and one of them kind of works in an airport but doesn't really work with people who come from overseas. You can plug all those different parameters in. Right. Um, And there are more specific and more accurate models that you can plug more parameters in, but those take quite a lot longer to run. You actually went along to a presentation on modelling and genome sequencing last week. Where was it and what did you find out? This was a a presentation by Sean Handy, who leads the modelling team at Te Punaha Matatini, the go-to modellers, I suppose, for the government uh, in evaluating the COVID outbreak and any future COVID outbreak. And by Jop de Licht, who is the head of bioinformatics at ESR, which is our national lab testing agency. And he does a lot of the genome sequencing work. And they sort of talked about this unique fusion of the two technologies to create a more holistic picture. So they look at the November case as as the prime example of how their technology is used. When that possible community outbreak was identified, the models began to run, the sequencing began to run, and as more results came back from the sequencing, that could be plugged into the model to get a a more and more accurate idea. In the end, they worked out the November case would not spread far. You know, their figure was, uh, it's several hundred million dollars to put Auckland into level three for three days. Mm. And that was avoided by, you know, a couple million dollars of investment in the genome uh, sequencing and the modelling work. This kind of modelling will be going on right now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And uh, as new information comes in, it'll continue to be plugged in. On Monday afternoon, we learned six of the 
10 close contacts of the three cases have returned negative tests, that will be plugged into the model and give us a better idea of, ah, okay, then there's less likely to be um, onward spread, probably. And that means the current possible size of the outbreak is now between this number and that number with a midpoint of, of whatever. What does this modeling look like? There are a couple of different kinds of models. Uh, one of them is run on a laptop, and that can be done in an hour, but it has a bit less uh, flexibility in terms of putting in different parameters and uh, a bit less granularity in terms of identifying specific locations and, and so on. Then there's a big model that requires quite a lot of computing power. It takes quite a while to run, um, but that incorporates everything from population density and a certain postcode to average income, whether people are more or less likely to be essential workers and therefore going to work and spreading, mobile phone data, which shows how mobile people are in certain areas around certain times of the year. It takes into account essentially everything you can possibly put in to get as realistic an idea of the possible spread of an outbreak. Mm -hmm. And it can also be tweaked to look at, well, if you put in this type of policy response, if you move the country, the city to level three, what would that do to potential spread in two weeks' time? Um, so it can be both used to estimate where we might be at now and where we might be at in the future and uh, estimate what the impact of government action could be on the spread of the virus. I just wonder what it's like for you covering these press conferences and, and, and what it's like getting information out of the government, you know, because it's been criticised for a bit of a lack of transparency on certain issues, hasn't it? What's your feeling? Is the government becoming more transparent about any kind of mistakes or failures, things like that? I think it's a less an issue of transparency and more an issue of accountability. I don't think anyone expects the border to be perfect because no system can be perfect. And this is an incredibly complex system we're dealing with. And as much as it sounds like a cliche, uh, you know, COVID-19 is a very, you know, tricky virus. You know, you have the ability for it to spread possibly via surfaces, definitely via droplets and definitely via aerosols as well, which means, you know, I can stand quite a distance away from you in a room talking to you and, and that could potentially infect you. Studies from overseas have shown that goes well beyond the one to two meters we're used to and, and can go closer to five meters or, or even further. So no system at the border can be perfect, but every sort of border failure, and, and I don't think it's a value judgment to say it's a border failure. You know, the border is meant to remain secure. If a case comes out through the border, that's a failure. Broadly, our response has been excellent. And a lot of that is due to the government's willingness to listen to the science, good communications, compliance from the team of 5 million who really played their part in March and April, but also a bit of luck. You know, we're lucky that we weren't among the first countries to get COVID-19 so we could see how it played out elsewhere. And we're often quite lucky in these MIQ breaches not leading to quite widespread transmission. But oftentimes the government has been reluctant to change aspects of the response until there is a mess up or, or a failure. For example, the situation in November, where even before that, the government knew that people were not wearing masks on public transport. It was very clear, you know, I asked the minister every week, are we going to mandate masks on public transport? Because guess how many people were wearing a mask on the train this morning? Just me. And he would say, well, you know, if we mandate it, then people may not do it. And then we lose the social license for our actions and, and so on. But then you have a community 
case and suddenly the government's able to mandate it. So essentially we wait until there's a mistake, then the government decides to act to try and make sure that that mistake doesn't happen again. And then we sort of sit with a, a still patchy system where in Wellington at least, you know, wearing masks on public transport is still not mandated in level one. And it probably won't be until we have a community case in Wellington, at which point they'll go, oh, we should mandate masks at level mm. one. This is the scientific advice that people like Michael Baker and Nick Wilson, epidemiologists at the University of Otago, have been giving for months now. Uh, and generally, the government tends to adopt these, but quite belatedly. You know, Michael Baker pushed quite early on for a lockdown, and eventually we did do that. He pushed quite early on for quarantine for returning New Zealanders. We did do that. He pushed early on for masks. We did do that. So, so the government comes around eventually, but it seems like we're playing this... Uh, sort of dangerous game where we we wait until something gets scary and bad enough for the government to feel like it has the uh, social license to act. <laughs> it's interesting how they operate, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's my cynical take on it, I, I will say. I, I imagine if I put this to the minister, he would disagree and say, oh, we're always reviewing our response. If there is a failure that's identified, we will patch up the gap that, that we find. And as new science comes forward, we will change policy in response to that. But you know, the science on mask wearing has been well established for the better part of a year, and still it's only required on domestic flights and public transport in Auckland, but not Wellington, not Christchurch. So the likes of Michael Baker, we are so familiar with, with their names now because they are informing us from outside the government, but surely they would be among the advisors to the government, wouldn't they? So I know Michael Baker is on the technical advisory group for COVID-19, um, but he's previously expressed to me that that is much less of a strategic organization in, in, in charge of looking at broad issues with, with the response and, and much more, what do you think about the likelihood of, of surface transmission? What do you think about the likelihood of aerosol transmission? Should our rules be one meter or two meter or three meter social distancing? Sort of those details bits, which he is qualified to talk about, but he, I think... Uh, would prefer the group to be able to take a broader view towards the government strategy as a whole. The fact that he does often take his case to the media indicates that he doesn't feel like he's being listened to by the government, at least not until something goes wrong and, and they have to... Take I can't say cover step. your ass on this podcast, can I? <laughs> you might get away with it, Mark. <laughs> and, and they have to cover their asses. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poak and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Mark Dolder. Mā te wā. Mā te wā.